Hello, Grace Fellowship family. So good to be with you today. So good to worship with you. And so excited to be able to share with you today. You know, in order to understand something, we need to know where that thing comes from. When you first meet someone new, I bet you ask them all kinds of questions to get to know them. You might start with questions about where they work, where they live, questions about their life right now. You know, but if you really want to understand them, you would ask them about where they're from. You would ask them questions about where they grew up and about their family. When I first started dating my wife, Erica, I thought I got to know her pretty well just through those initial conversations we had in the first few dates, but it wasn't until I met her family that I really started to understand her. Her family was so different than mine. So seeing how she interacted with them, her close family who had known her since she was born, gave me such a better understanding of who she was. By knowing her siblings, her parents, you know, their family customs, their family culture, in other words, knowing where she came from, I got to know her far better than I could have possibly otherwise. Knowing where something comes from is critical to understanding it. There's a lot of talk about the church right now, especially in the age of COVID-19 and government lockdowns. We're all asking questions. Should we go along with these measures and just worship from our homes? Is doing church online enough? Do we really need to physically gather in order to be the church? How many people need to gather in order for it to be the church? You know, as we wrestle with these kinds of questions, I think it is essential that we understand what the church is. And so to do that, we're gonna go back to the beginning and try to better understand where the church came from. So for the next few weeks, we're going to look at the second chapter of the book of Acts, where the beginnings of the church are recorded. And as we do this, I would encourage you, each and every one of you, to read and study through this second chapter of Acts on your own. Take the next few weeks and really dive into it. Maybe read through those first few chapters several times, even in different versions, which can be really helpful. Grab a study Bible maybe even, or a commentary, and learn some about the context and the historical details, and I think you'll get a lot more out of this. So today, we're gonna to be focused on just the first 13 verses of Acts chapter two. Next week, Pastor Tim is gonna pick up in verse 14 and lead us through the sermon that the Apostle Peter preaches to the gathered crowds. And the following week, Pastor Matt will wrap up our mini-series by taking a look at just the last few verses of the chapter that describe what the life of this rapidly growing church was like. You know, it's my prayer that God will use these few weeks in Acts 2 to really bring us together as a church family. And I hope it'll also get us really excited about God and what he's gonna do in and through us in the coming months as we build community and worship in home groups and as we transition back to gathering together at our buildings. So with that as our prayer, let's go ahead and wherever you are, open up your Bible or your device to Acts chapter two. In verse one, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So just in this very first verse, when I read it, there's a couple questions that immediately come to my mind. The first is, who is this they that's being referred to here? And it's 
pretty simple to find this out. We just need to step back a little bit to the first chapter of Acts, where we see in verses 14 and 15 of that chapter that the disciples and the other early followers of Jesus, of which there were 120 of in all, had been regularly gathering together. Sometimes they would gather in the upper room where the Last Supper took place. They would also daily gather, it says in Luke 24, in the temple courts. And in this case, what we're reading here, because of the events we're about to read, I think it's safe to assume that they were probably meeting in a room of the temple which would make sense because as good Jews, what they were doing here is they were gathering together for what was known as Pentecost or the Feast of the Harvest. This was one of the big three of the Jewish festivals, the one that all able-bodied Jewish males were required by the Mosaic law to attend. And Pentecost, that word in Greek, which is the name for this festival, means 50th, and which is incredibly appropriate because this festival, the Feast of the Harvest, took place 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits, which took place during the Passover celebration. So this Pentecost festival was perhaps the best attended of the Jewish festivals by Jews, not just from Jerusalem or Israel, but from all around the Roman Empire because there was typically good weather this time of year. So as we'll see shortly, it's no coincidence in God's timing that the events that are about to take place in the following verses happen during this festival, when so many people are gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world. The last question I have about just this first verse even is why were these disciples all together? You know, it could seem obvious just to say that perhaps they were gathered together for this festival, which is probably true because they were good Jews after all. But, From the text, we can see that they were also together for another more important reason. After Jesus had ascended into heaven, he told his first followers to wait in Jerusalem for what he called the promise of the Father. We read in John 16, 7, that Jesus had told his disciples that it was better for them if he left them, because then God the Father would send what he called the helper or the Holy Spirit to be with them forever. Jesus would not physically be with them anymore, but the Holy Spirit would, and he had promised to never leave them. So the disciples were gathered continually to pray and to wait for what Jesus had promised them. They were gathered here to wait for the promise of the Father. We're gonna get back to that in a minute, but let's keep reading in verse two of Acts chapter two says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Suddenly, all of a sudden, in other words, they weren't expecting this. This is not what they were planning for. This comes out of nowhere. I would invite you to imagine this scene for a second. Imagine you're sitting together in a room with maybe a hundred or so other people, Sounds like, you know, a typical church service, uh, pre-COVID, of course. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you and everyone else in the room hear what sounds like a tornado about to rip through the room. But you don't feel anything. There's no wind, just the sound. Imagine how incredibly disorienting that would be and how much it would leave you on the edge of your seat anticipating what was about to happen. Are the walls of the room you're in about to cave in? 
believe it or not, it gets even crazier as we read on in verse three. It says, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Divided tongues of fire. Wow, <laughs> can you imagine this? First, there's a tornado about to rip through the house, or at least what sounds like one. And then what looks like flames of fire appear in the room with you and rest on each person. What is going on here? Is the place about to go up in flames? I can't imagine they had any idea what was going on. Each person has what appears to be fire resting on them. But just like there's the sound of wind with no actual wind, there's no one being burned by this fire. Perhaps you've seen Sunday school images of this story before, pictures, illustrations, but imagine it really happening. And I, I know myself can imagine how disorienting and how totally beyond anything I have experienced this would be. And I bet the disciples had no idea what was going on either. When we look back though, and see it in the context of the rest of the Bible, there is actually a lot of precedent for wind and for fire as evidences of God's presence. And even wind particularly as an evidence of the Holy Spirit. We see in Job 38 that God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. In John chapter three, Jesus compares the work of the Holy Spirit to wind. And I think it's incredibly interesting and not by accident that in both Hebrew and Greek, the same word for spirit is the word for wind. Both in Hebrew and Greek, wind and spirit is the same word. Now in Exodus, as we think about fire and flames, God spoke to Moses out of a bush that did not burn. Sound familiar? Fire and flame, but no burning. He led the Israelites through the wilderness with a pillar of fire, and his presence appeared as fire and smoke on Mount Sinai. And finally, John the Baptist said that Jesus, the one who was greater than he, would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Maybe these disciples were thinking about these things. They knew the Jewish scriptures. They knew the history of their people as they experienced these crazy phenomena. But I bet that they were pretty surprised and disoriented just as any one of us would be. This is just the beginning though, these things that they're experienced. So let's look at verse four and as we continue on with this. Verse four says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's stop there for a second before we even read the rest of that verse. I told you I'd come back to Jesus's promise that the Father would send the Holy Spirit. Well, this is it. This is the moment they've been waiting for. This is the moment when the Holy Spirit comes. Before we go any further though, I wanna make sure that we are all on the same page when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Who is he? Uh, there's a lot of confusion, I think, around who the Holy Spirit is. So to get this right is key, or we're gonna misunderstand this whole story. As we read through the pages of scripture, it's clear that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is God. Think about that. He's not an impersonal force, but he is co-equal with God the Father and Jesus, God the Son. 
I don't have near enough time to break down and do a full walkthrough of the Trinitarian nature of God. That would take us all day. But I'll try to summarize the historic teaching of the church just by saying that there is one God in three persons. There's not three gods. There are not just three expressions of God. There is one God in three persons. That means that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. There is one God. Now, this is an incredible mystery, and I can't imagine that any of us can fully wrap our minds around this or understand it. But this is what the Bible teaches about God. And what this means is that when Jesus promised to have the Father send the Holy Spirit, he was promising to send them the very presence of God. When Jesus was with them physically, he was God, God in the flesh right there with them. But he was limited by his humanity because he was fully God and fully man. He couldn't be in more than one place at a time, just like any human. He could walk away from his disciples and he wouldn't be with them anymore. However, when with a father would send the Holy Spirit, that is a different case altogether. The Holy Spirit would baptize them or fill them, it said, and remain with them forever. So think about that. The Holy Spirit would fill them and remain with them forever. So the very presence of God, not just standing in front of them as a person, but dwelling inside of them, the presence of the Creator God, living inside of his people, going with them and never leaving them. Besides just the presence of God with them, the promise of the Holy Spirit was even more than that. The promise of the Holy Spirit was the promise of the power of God as well. In Acts 1.8, just the previous chapter, Jesus told his disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came on them. Now, when Jesus was with his disciples, they had a connection. They had access to the power of God through Jesus. He did miracles and they watched all that. They saw all those things. They had a close connection with him personally. But that's not what is promised here. With the promised sending of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about a whole different level of access to the power of God. We're talking about the very power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power living in Jesus's people. Now, hold on a second. <laughs> I don't want you to be confused about the power of God living in us because it was never something that we were gonna be able to control. The power of God is not as if we are given a superpower or we have a genie at our beck and call to do whatever we want. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is not a force that can be controlled, not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is God. That means he is fully sovereign. He is fully free to act however he pleases. But at the same time, he is fully good. And he is fully pleased to come and dwell within the hearts of those who call Jesus Lord. What we're talking about here is the power of a changed life, the power of a renewed 
brand new mind and way of thinking. It's power that can make a person be born for a second time or born again, as Jesus says to Nicodemus. It's a power that can take fearful, feeble, sinful people and turn them into fearless, undaunted, forgiven, free people. We're gonna see a great example of that next week as Pastor Tim talks about the Apostle Peter. These are people that are not ruled by their failures, our flaws, or the opinions of other people and what they think of us. This kind of power can change the heart, change our hearts, and change the world around us. And this is the power that Jesus promised his people at the coming of the Holy Spirit. Not a power that can be controlled, but one that must be submitted to and worshiped because this power is a person. And this is what those first disciples were filled with. So let's keep reading the rest of verse four and see what happens when they are filled. I'll read it from the beginning again. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When the Holy Spirit fills these disciples, they begin to speak in languages that they don't know. These are not languages that they have spent time learning. There's no Rosetta Stone involved here. This is the Holy Spirit empowering them to do this instantly, instantaneously, no practice, no preparation. We don't even know because it doesn't say in the text if they know what they're saying. This isn't something that they've learned or worked on. It is a spontaneous, instantaneous response that the Holy Spirit is causing to well up inside of them. So a lot of people get caught up in this part of the story and stay here, preach whole sermons on this part. And I understand why, because it's a crazy, miraculous event that this happens. Theologians debate whether this is the same gift of tongues that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians and other places. Pastors will preach whole messages focused in on just this part of this story. But I don't want us to do that today. I don't want us to get stuck here. I want us to see where this miracle goes because it's not an end into itself. It's not the end of the story here. Whether it's the spiritual gift of tongues or whether it's something else, this is not the end. It has a purpose. And that's what I want us to see today. So let's keep reading in verse five. Verse five says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And before we keep reading, let's skip down to verse nine, where it lists out who all of these groups of people were. It says there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. It's a long list of names that are hard to say. <laughs> but the point here is remember that I mentioned earlier at, at the Feast of Pentecost, people came to Jerusalem from all over, 
Well, that's what this is listing out for us. It's listing a, a whole list of people from all different nations that Luke, the author of Acts, gives to us. This list literally circles around the Roman Empire if you look at where each of these places is located. It's a whole scope of the known world at that time. So right at this very moment, right when God the Father sovereignly fulfills his promise to send the Holy Spirit, right then, there are people from all over the known world in Jerusalem. Talk about absolutely perfect timing. And this is important. We need to get this because God's heart and his plan has always been not just for one people group, but for all the nations and the entire world. We see this even back in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter two, when God calls Abraham and says that he would make of him a great nation. What he says to him the purpose of that was that through Abraham, through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And who is that offspring? The offspring of Abraham is Jesus. And there are countless other places throughout the Old Testament where God shares his heart, that it stretches to all the peoples of the earth, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And right here, right in this moment, as the Holy Spirit that was promised by Jesus is poured out on his people. The message of Jesus now has a chance right in this moment to begin to go out from here, out from Israel to the very ends of the earth. And we see this even more clearly as we read what happens as these multitudes interact with these spirit-filled disciples. Think about this at verse six. It says, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So we don't know if they heard the sound of the wind or if they heard the people speaking, because 120 people speaking loudly would probably draw some attention. But either way, these crowds come and investigate what they hear. They come to see what is going on. So they were likely, as I said earlier, meeting in a room of the temple. And that would make perfect sense because that's where these multitudes would have been gathered for this festival of Pentecost. So perhaps the disciples have already spilled out into the temple courts as they're speaking. Maybe they come out to meet the crowds as the crowds gather in response to this sound. So whatever caught their attention, what each person was hearing from among these followers is someone speaking in their own language. This crowd though, you need to remember, had a common language. They all had a language that they spoke and that was Greek. Next week, Pastor Tim is gonna talk about the sermon that Peter preaches to the crowd, and that was probably preached in Greek, and they all would have understand it because it was the known common language at the time. But what's going on here is different, and the purpose is different. The crowds of people are drawn to these disciples, and all of them are speaking in their native, the language of these people gathered. 
And they're confused, it says in the text, because they identify these disciples as Galileans. So why was that confusing to them? Well, Galilee was the region of Israel that Jesus and most of his disciples were from. Galilee was a very small town though, probably only like two to 400 people. And it had that kind of a reputation, a real small town <laughs> reputation. Imagine you know, one of the smallest towns up in upstate New York. People saw these Galileans as uneducated. They had a reputation as being kind of backwoodsy types. They even, this is interesting, they had a distinct dialect that people recognized. That's how they knew these people were Galileans. And they were, historians even now talk about, they think they had a hard time pronouncing some vowels, which is what made their dialect so distinct. And all this means, it adds up to the fact that these people are extremely surprised these people in the crowds, because they hear these Galileans perfectly speaking each of their native languages. But it, it's also interesting here that in the Greek, the word is not just language, it's actually the word for dialect, which I think means that the disciples were not only speaking the local language of the people, each person, remember, <laughs> in the crowd, but they were speaking the specific local dialect of where each person was from. So each person in this crowd is hearing these disciples speak in their exact native dialect. Imagine that for a second. Imagine that you are somewhere else in the world, you know, somewhere that's a non-English speaking country and the only language you speak is English. Imagine being there and not just hearing someone all of a sudden off in the distance speak in English, but imagine them hearing them speak in upstate New York English, the exact way that you would hear your neighbor talk or that you would pronounce words. Wouldn't that stand out to you? That would be surprising to hear, even if it was coming from a crowd, to hear someone speaking exactly as you do in a foreign land where you don't expect that at all. And I love this because I think this shows God's heart, God's specific personal care for these people. He loves them personally, enough that he tailors this miracle to each and every one of the people in the crowd. I think the real question here though, and again, getting to the purpose of all this, is what did the crowds hear them saying? It's certainly a miracle. It's an amazing miracle that they heard them in their native language and that's certainly what got everyone's attention. But what were they saying? That's, I think, what is key here. Let's look at the second half of verse 11 as it talks about what they were saying. The people said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So what did the Holy Spirit empower these first followers of Jesus to say in all these different languages? They proclaimed the mighty works of God. In other words, they worshiped. They were worshiping God. I know I'm biased. I am a worship leader after all, but I think this is incredible. This is an amazing thing. I think what this says is that those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, will first and foremost be those who will loudly proclaim the greatness and the goodness of God. 
I think this means that the spirit-filled life is one of continual worship, where the spirit within us again and again causes our hearts to overflow with gratefulness to God, gratefulness for all that he has done, gratefulness for all the things that we have in Jesus. And I think that this also means that it just might be our wholehearted and spirit-filled worship that will make people pay attention, people around us in this area pay attention and wonder what is the reason for the hope within us, the hope that we have, just as it says in 1 Peter. All of this, all of these things, the miracle, what they were saying, left the people in the crowds amazed and perplexed. The last couple verses here say, and all the people were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Pastor Tim next week is gonna pick up this story right here where we just stopped. I love the question though, they ask, what does this all mean? So I wanna take a few minutes now just to think about together with you what this might mean for us. What is this strange, incredible, miraculous account of the birth and very beginning of the church mean for us? What does it teach us? I wanna leave you with just a couple of points of application for us as individuals, each of us, but also as a church community here in upstate New York right now in 2020. The first thing is that even though Pentecost was a unique event to birth the church, the Holy Spirit is the same. I don't think I can overemphasize this. We have no reason to expect and think that God will do this exact thing again. He never even works quite like this again in the pages of scripture. There's never again the sound of a rushing wind. There's never again tongues of fire. However, and listen, listen here, God is still the same. The Holy Spirit is still the same and is still alive and working in and through his people. As I talked about earlier, the same power and presence that these first disciples had is ours today because the Holy Spirit is the same today. That means the church, and that includes Grace Fellowship. It is birthed by the Holy Spirit, started by the Holy Spirit. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And even now, this church is sustained by the work of the Holy Spirit. It will look different in our lives. It will look different today. There's no doubt about it. After all, this was the very beginning. This story we just read was the origin story. It was the start of it all. So of course, there were things about it that were unique and beyond what we might expect to see. But as those who have repented of our sin, those who have, of us who have trusted in Jesus, those who've been not only that, but adopted into God's very family, who share in the inheritance of Christ with all the followers of Jesus throughout all time from every nation and time, we should fully expect, fully expect to experience the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. We should expect that. The second point though, is that we need to fully rely on the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. 
It is so easy, and I'm sure you know this, it's so easy to be self-reliant, to rely on ourselves, and that's actually something that is incredibly valued in our culture, isn't it? Self-reliance. But as Christians, we are called to something different. We are called to be spirit-reliant. We don't have the power to change ourselves. We don't have the ability to change ourselves into what we should be. We don't have the power on our own to overcome the sin that each and every one of us struggles with. I know I don't. I don't have what it takes to be as bold or as courageous as we know we should be and maybe even we want to be in sharing our faith. We don't have that within us. We don't have enough love in our hearts to love even our enemies, those who are different than us, those who think differently than us, those who perhaps believe differently than us. But we may not have that within us, in ourselves. But as followers of Jesus, we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. We have that. And God has promised that what he began, he will also complete. He does this by changing us from the inside out. He does this as we die to ourselves. We die to our old old ways, to our own ways. We surrender our wills. We submit to God's wisdom. We submit to his love for us. We submit to his call on our lives. So that's my encouragement to you and my challenge to you is not to rely on yourself. Don't think you can do it in and of yourself. Instead, ask the Holy Spirit to keep working on you. And as he does, submit to that. Submit to the ways that the Holy Spirit does that. Now, this doesn't just apply to us as individuals. This applies to us as a local church too. And I think this is an incredibly important question we have to continually ask ourselves as a church. Are we relying on the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Are we relying on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? Even as we make plans, even as we come up with processes and ways of doing things, are we relying on the leadership and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God within us as his people? Or maybe are we just relying on the way we've always done things? One of my favorite authors named A.W. Tozer offers an incredibly convicting statement. I'm convicted by this myself. He offers this statement to the church and he says this, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. But if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would completely stop and everyone would know the difference. May that never be true of us as a church. That is my prayer that that would not be the case. But as as a church, we would be sure to always actively rely on the leadership and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in every plan that we make, in every ministry that we pursue, and in all we do as the church, we would rely on the Holy Spirit. And finally, the last thing is that being filled with the Holy Spirit will lead us to worship and witness. 
worship and witness. It may not be in a foreign language like these disciples probably won't, (laughs) but I think the language of the spirit-filled follower of Jesus is praise, praise to the one who has given everything for us. Jesus lived this spirit-filled life and he showed us what that true life should look like. Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins. He rose again to conquer sin, to conquer death and to conquer hell. And even right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and has all authority. He calls us into his kingdom. He calls us into his kingdom through repentance, through faith, and he sends us out. He commissions us to take the message of his love to the nations, to every nation of the world, which as we saw was God's heart from the very beginning. He calls us to do that with our worship and with our witness. Don't ever underestimate the power of your testimony, the power of a worshiping heart and the power of your testimony of God's faithfulness to you. Most of us are not called to be pastors or missionaries, but we need to remember, as Pastor Rex often says, we are called to make our life our ministry. I think that as we do that, by living a life of worship, a life of gratefulness to God for all that he has done, gratefulness will lead us to speak of the mighty works of God, just as these first disciples did, whenever we can, to anyone who will listen to us. And when a whole community of people lives that way, when a whole community of people lives a life of worship and witness and testifying to the mighty works of God, when we encourage each other to continue on in that, and we do all that by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, it's then that we can clearly see the Holy Spirit is at work. And don't be surprised when a whole community of people lives that way, when amazing, awe-inspiring, incredible things happen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you and praise you for sending the Holy Spirit to us as your people, for empowering us, for giving us your very presence, for giving us the power to live new lives, new changed lives, for giving us the confidence that you will go with us and never leave us. We thank you for this. We give you all praise for who you are. Would you help us to declare from hearts that are grateful, full of praise, to declare your mighty works, to live lives of worship, live lives of thanksgiving and lives of witness, to a hurting, broken world around us of all that you have done for us. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit within us that testifies to all that Jesus has done, that reminds us of how much you have given us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, the wonderful, powerful, beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.